up next, Code Pink Radio over WBAI and WPFW. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say Code War. We say Code Pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say Code War. We say Code Pink. Welcome to Code Pink Radio. This is Arielle Gold and Terry Matson, and you are listening to WPFW in Washington D.C. and WBAI out of New York City. And today we are going to be talking with Nora Ericot about Israel being taken to the International Criminal Court as well as talking with Hassan Al-Tayyib about what Congress can and is doing to prevent a war with Iran. That's amazing that the missiles aren't flying this week. Well, they could be at any moment. I don't know that the American people realize that we are far from out of the danger. We are still very much on the brink of a war. Well, and that's our job to help keep that message out there. So speaking of being on the brink of a war, the countries of Germany, France, and Britain have formally accused Iran of breaching the 2015 nuclear deal that the Trump administration tore the U.S. out of. But it's been revealed that uh, prior to uh, these three countries um, making that accusation, which could result in the United Nations uh, reimposing sanctions and the unraveling of the last vestiges of this historic deal for diplomacy. So uh, shortly before that, it's been revealed that uh, Donald Trump threatened these three countries with to impose a 25% tariff on automobile experts, uh, exports from those countries. And so those countries really had no choice but to um, trigger this, this new part, which can very well bring us again closer to war. So it's another great example, I shouldn't say great, another perfect example, example of economic warfare, and economic blackmail, economic warfare, and... Um, U.S. bullying. Exactly. Shame on us. You know, we demand that the rest of the world do exactly our bidding 
or else we punish them, uh, in this case, economically. And uh, this is a really dangerous situation. So this is something we should um, continue to expand on with our work here at Code Pink, is this whole notion of economic warfare. And it's a big part of our job is getting U.S. citizens to understand these new forms, these non-hot forms of warfare that are being used. And they're, and they're successful to an extent because the U.S. controls the global currency and the overnight banking system. They're successful in causing the suffering of common people, not yeah. successful in... Changing uh, regimes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or building democracy. I think that's the other phrase everybody likes to use. Yeah. yeah. Since Trump withdrew us from the Iran nuclear deal, brutal, brutal uh, sanctions have been imposed on Iran, which have hurt not the people in power there, not the government of Iran, but the people of Iran. Indiscriminately. To, and to such yeah. an extent that Iranians are not able to get life-saving medications like medicines to treat leukemia epilepsy and the eye injuries the permanent eye injuries that so many Iranians sustained from the use of chemical weapons during the Iran Iraq war and where did those chemical weapons come from well the US <laughs> supplied them to Saddam yeah, funny Hussein thing with that, right yeah but so uh, to take us out of the Middle East, let's give a little bit of a news overview from some other places as well before we move into uh, the interviews that we have uh, for today. And of course, all of these things are connected. It's not just Iran that the U.S. is using economic warfare against, but it's other countries, countries in Latin America as well. About 33 countries across the planet. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it's not a small number and it's not an insignificant um, number of, you know, human beings affected, populations affected by by this particular form of warfare. And, you know, the thing with Iran, there's an interesting story that came up. Of course, those of us who have been doing Latin American solidarity work for a number of years, that which is my role with Code Pink, along with Michelle Elner and Leonardo Flores, um, We've seen and understood this development of global south, south-to-south trading, multilateralism versus a unilateral trading model um, that the United States would see. And one of those things that um, came out of um, particularly then Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez embracing multilateralism was um, a south-to-south alliance with Iran. And this is a you know, a fairly long-term relationship, trade relationship specifically, that is now in the news being exploited. Um, I think there was a crazy article in the New York Post over the weekend that um, said Iran could potentially use Venezuela as a launch pad for warfare with the United States. And, of course, it's at those, you know, low-rung publications that stories like that start and you know i haven't seen any mainstream media pick up that story yet although the u.s installed president of honduras quickly came out um and said that honduras is declaring itself an enemy of iran and hezbollah so you can see that this narrative is beginning to take root and um the alliance between iran and venezuela is something worth discussing and understanding since, you know, we do work in both countries and that it is um, connected. connected. It shows how 
<laughs> this whole paradigm of U.S. foreign policy is connected. You know, Venezuela, along with the rest of Latin America, has suffered since 1823 this U.S. concept of the Monroe Doctrine. And I would argue this whole unilateral takeover of the planet is basically, you know, Monroe Doctrine for the planet um, in, a, in a sense. So it's really important to understand this relationship and that it's it's not new. It's not based on military. It's based on global south-to-south trade that was introduced um, I believe like around 19, 2005, I think, is when um, Venezuela embraced this whole notion of multilateralism. And, of course, that's a threat to the whole vision of unilateralism espoused by the United States. But elsewhere in Latin America, things are I happening. don't know how many people actually understand there was a major earthquake in Puerto Rico on top of... Um, still attempting to recover from a major hurricane. And uh, the, the federal government is not sending aid, although I am really pleased to see the governor of my home state, Gavin Newsom, slot, uh, sent, um, I think, 15 experts to Puerto Rico to help um, devise a recovery plan. Gee, maybe Congress could cut the Pentagon budget no, you and wonder. use yeah. some of that There's money no for... There's no money for any domestic programs. Hurricane um, relief rather yeah, than that. military. Um, what else are we talk about? A caravan, another caravan coming up from Honduras um, in response to the particularly harsh political, economic, and overall living conditions there. I think that's um, a big element that um, needs better understanding, is that people are um, not simply fleeing to the United States for jobs or a better life or more democracy. They're fleeing um, horrific economic and political conditions that um, have been exacerbated by the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And in Venezuela, the newly elected leaders of Venezuela's National Assembly have been sanctioned by the Trump administration, despite the fact that they are from parties that were are in opposition to the Maduro government. So it seems like Trump is really not giving up on uh, his intent for regime change for Venezuela. It has to be regime change in, with exactly the, the characters, the, the actors that the United States wants. You know, these the new uh, officials elected to the National Assembly are opposition party members, but they are not the opposition party members that were backed to stand up and declare themselves president uh, in February of 19. So you, this is a really overt example of the United States not wanting to back any sort of dialogue between opposition and elected Maduro government officials. It is um, a a clear example of the U.S. wanting its own appointed government in power and not supporting any sort of dialogue and self, um, well, uh, a sense of a sovereign solution from within inside the country. Thankfully, a lot of Americans are rising up and pushing back, and we have some things going on right now here in Washington, D.C., so it's that time of year again for the Women's March, and today... 
the Women's March is focusing on preventing a war with Iran. Now, we at Code Pink, we have been uh, primary partners of the Women's March since its very formation, and we are an organization that uh, leads their anti-war work. Uh, Women's March is uh, working today on stopping a war with Iran, and at 12 o'clock, in just 45 minutes from now, they will be at the U.S. Capitol. Um in the Senate building, in the Hart Atrium building, and there should be some direct actions because this is a dangerous situation. And one of the ways to stop a war with Iran is to remove Trump. So some forces are joining here between no war with Iran and remove Trump. So get on over there. And also, oh, I think this we'll be headed there shortly. <laughs> we will. after we're done talking with all of you, so you can meet up with our pink team there. We are pretty easy to find. Uh, but right now, let's move over, move the conversation um, over to Israel Palestine because there is, as usual, a lot going on there. And for anybody who's been following this. Israel is actually being taken to the International Criminal Court. And so we have uh, two people joining us. One is Code Pink's uh, campaign director for the Middle East, Anas Asafadi. And the other is international human rights law, international law expert, Nora Arakat. So let's see if we can bring Anas and Nora on. Wonderful. Do we have you on the line? I'm here. I'm here. Great. Um, Nora, maybe if you could just start by mentioning your most recent book to give our listeners a, a little background for anybody who is not familiar with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ariel. Um, my my first single author book um, came out in April 2019, entitled Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. Uh, what the book does is tries to tell a different story about the Palestinian struggle for freedom by looking at the relationship between law and politics and using that lens to provide a 100th century um, long arc between 1917 and 2017, both to explain uh, five significant junctures in the question of Palestine as well as provide a history of the present. Fantastic. And, uh, and Nas, I, I, I want to mention, maybe if you can say a few words, that uh, you are from one of the main targets of Israel's war crimes uh, from Gaza. Um, so I'm, um, I'm in Asafadi, and I uh, moved from Gaza uh, uh, in 2016 for law school here. And I've been living there for my entire life, and I witnessed um, all Israel's uh, war crimes that conduct in Gaza. Um, and um, from there, uh, we uh, about a couple of months ago, uh, the chief prosecutor uh, um, concluded that the termination that all the statutory criteria under the Rome Statute um, uh, for opening of an investigation on the Israeli-Palestine war crimes committed in West Bank. East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip has uh, been missed, and I would like to ask Nora if she can explain to us uh, that investigation set and the jurisdiction procedure. Um, thanks, Ines. Yes, and and I, the short of it is is to understand a few things. 
Um, the first is to explain what is the ICC. The International Criminal Court is basically the creation of a multilateral treaty, the Rome Statute, that was signed in 1998 and brought into life in 2002 when there were a sufficient number of signatories. So this is not a UN body, but instead an international body that's been created by um, multilateral agreement um, and voluntary acquiescence. You are only subject to the jurisdiction of the court uh, if, on its own volition if you are a party to the statute. Israel and the United States are not parties to the statute. Uh, the United States has ensured that it's entered into bilateral agreements with um, almost every other state so that they can ensure that none of the U.S. military personnel are ever prosecuted for war crimes in the tribu International Tribunal, but instead will be subject to some sort of military, uh, U.S. military tribunal. Israel has also not subject itself to, uh, has not ratified the statute. It has argued from the beginning that the statute was politicized because it lists as part of its war crimes uh, laws, uh, grave breaches of laws of occupation, and for Israel, they say they saw that as specifically invoking Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Statute, which prohibits civilian settlement in occupied territory. And even before anybody said Israel or brought it up, they were simply, in, you know, referencing international law and norms. Israel accused the court of being politicized. So we saw the writing on the wall a long time ago. The way the, the, the court itself, since its existence in 2002, has been um, subject to a tremendous amount of controversy because of its politicized nature. The largest state member of the court is Brazil. And because there are certain um, um, statutes within the Rome, uh, sorry, certain articles within the Rome statute that would allow, allow a country to have jurisdiction first. So if your court, if a national court, has a well-developed um, system that can investigate itself, you are not subject to the jurisdiction of the ICC. This is the Article uh, of 17, which is complementarity. So you will not be subject, which is why most industrialized developed states that have developed their international, uh, have developed their court system are not going to be prosecuted at the ICC. Instead, they're going to be prosecuted in their own national courts. And why, since 2002, the only actors that have been brought to the court have been African heads of state and uh, Slobodan Milosevic of Serbia, or the former Yugoslavia. And why several African states have actually rescinded um, and pulled out of the treaty itself, which brings us Israel. So now we want to talk about this jurisdiction. Um, how is it that the ICC can have jurisdiction over Israel, even though it's not um, ratified the statute? It's because one, you only need one party to bring the claim, and Palestine has met that standard. It is acceded to the Rome Statute in 2015 and um, asked for uh, this, this coverage. Um, subsequently, in order to uh, in order to look at and investigate all uh, possible issues since 2014, this was the second attempt by Palestine to do so. The first time was in 2009, in the aftermath of what Israel refers to as Operation Cast Lead, what we know as the first large scale military offensive against 
the besieged Palestinians in Gaza. And then it was a different, the ICC prosecutor was Luis Moreno Ocampo, who refused that, um, who refused that request, citing that Israel, that Palestine's statehood is in question and only state parties can bring the claim. After that was 2012, that same year, Palestine earned recognition of the United Nations, United Nations with an overwhelming uh, number of states in the General Assembly recognized Palestine as a state, make, meaning that it was no longer in controversy, which is why this case, although very interesting and uplifting, is also very curious, because what happened was is that the new prosecutor, Fatu Bansuda, um, had to simply answer the question of whether or not there were a sufficient, there were controversies in cases that merited ICC investigation. That's all, and she had to know she had to decide whether or not Palestine was a state. Not only did she appoint a committee to make the decision, which answered in the affirmative on the on the jurisdiction question, she since said, um, she since decided that at, when she issued that, okay, Palestine is a state, there is jurisdiction, she simultaneously said, but just to make sure and just to ensure that there are no controversies, we're actually going to subject this yet to another um, another round of scrutiny. And, and that's, that's where we're at right now. And that other round of scrutiny is to determine whether Palestine is considered a state for these purposes? And then I have a second Absolutely. question for you. I heard you mention that uh, Brazil is the mm-hmm. largest state member of the court, and I'm wondering how that might play in given... Uh, the fascist uh, government there right now, Bolsonaro and his and their close, alliance with Israel, their alliance with both Israel and the Trump administration. Yeah. Um, so on the first question, yes. So what's really curious is that it, this should have been a no brainer about because now that Palestine is recognized as a state by the U.N. General Assembly, it's no longer really a question of whether or not Palestine is a state. What remains in controversy and why they want to subject to some more rigorous analysis is whether or not this interferes with the peace process or the defunct farcical peace process. They want to answer the question of what does this mean when there are no determined borders? How is Palestine a state without borders, given that Israel has never declared its borders um, and that the 1967 or 1949 armistice lines are not not settled, notwithstanding those, you know, outstanding issues the ICC prosecutor has answered in the affirmative because of the General Assembly uh, recognition. But I think to cover for herself, this is very politicized. So she doesn't want to take full responsibility uh, for, for making this determination. This will be part of her legacy. And it's not, you know, it's not surprising that this is also at the end of her term that she's, you know, kind of kicking the can down the road, uh, so to speak, so that she can win. On the one hand, she's saying, that she has determined that the ICC does have jurisdiction, and out of the other side of her mouth, she's saying, "But I'm not going to make that decision on my own. I'm going to give it. I'm going to punt it to someone else to make that decision." So for her, it was a political win-win. Now, had she not done this, it would have she would have been in a bind because uh, if if the ICC didn't prosecute Israel, it would have been a massive failure given the controversy, especially its. Um, fixation on um, heads of African states. And on the other hand, it would have been uh, very risky because the U.S. and Israel have, bo- have both said, you know, have promised repercussions. 
and the U.S. has already applied a tremendous amount of pressure, including threatening to withdraw its funding. And for its own purposes, the U.S. prohibited any ICC personnel, including the ICC prosecutor, from investigating U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan and would not grant them entry into the United States even to conduct interviews. So we already, so this is a very, the ICC's existence is on the line, so to speak. Its, it's future is on the line. As to the second question about Brazil, I mean, this is all tenuous. Brazil may be a, a, um, a party to the statute, um, but whether or not, you know, it can remain a party and still threaten, you know, to, to, to withdraw support for the ICC if anybody, you know, pursues prosecution or investigation of Israel. So that would, that would be the case, whether or not it was actually um, a party, as the U.S. is doing and as we've seen. So has Brazil no. threatened that? Not yet. Not that I've seen. But you might have. I've not seen that. But it's possible they might, are you saying? Uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Given and alliance, not just... Given their alliance with Israel, their overt alliance with Israel and the United States, it's, it seems that would not be unlikely for them to to withdraw, although I haven't seen anything either. I haven't seen anything even inferring that. Withdrawal is quite dramatic. The fact that African states have withdrawn is a really, really big deal Um, because it's basically the dissolution of of something that you've built. So that they might not go to that extreme. And also consider that most states are also protecting themselves. If Bolsonaro is not interested in this, it's also because they want Brazil to avoid scrutiny as well which is going to be a big issue, not merely its alliance with Israel, but also its own accountability. So, what do you think is uh, Israel's uh, government next step, especially that uh, they are com- uh, upcoming with a third governmental election, and also uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, after the charge, uh, after ICC moved the case on investigation, stated that the International Criminal Court has no jurisdiction over Israel. What do you think they will, the, their next step will be? I think they're going to do two things. It's a great question, Inas. One is what we've already seen them do, which is immediately to delegitimize the court. That was the mm-hmm. first step. But Netanyahu went so far as to call the movement forward as anti-Semitic. So they're clearly, um, and, and it might become a politicized issue uh, where they're now going to accuse the court of any international body. I mean, I think that it's, it's overreach. And it will backfire, probably not amongst the Israeli public, but certainly amongst the international public, to go so far as to accuse the ICC of being anti-Semitic for investigating not just Israeli war crimes. They're going to investigate Hamas as well. Yeah. So, I mean, and the prosecutor was... Go ahead. No, no, no. I just confirmed that it's going to be a Palestine-Israel investigation, not only Israel. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, they could... One, once Palestine subjects itself to the jurisdiction, the court has jurisdiction over the entire territory and all crimes, all possible um, crimes against humanity and war crimes within it. So they're not, they can't solely investigate one thing. And Hamas, Hamas's use of rocket fire um, is going to be one of the easiest things to investigate because it's ipso facto doesn't have the capacity to target. You don't have precision targeting on crude weapons, there is no technology, which means that you cannot distinguish between civilians and combatants, in which case, it's, even if it's not targeting civilians, it's, it's, it's tantamount to being recklessness. That's my assessment of this. 
and it would be really e- it's probably the easiest thing for the prosecutor to do and sh- if she still if she still you know there if, when this proceeds if it proceeds because it might not we might find a contradictory response but if it proceeds that will probably be the first conclusion that she issues that will okay. be the first conclusion that she issues the second thing that um Israel is, I think, going to do in order to protect itself is to mount its own investigation of itself. It's already started that. It's opened five criminal investigations. I mean, that's a really insignificant number, and I think it's insufficient. And also, if we examine past cases of self-investigation, they've been, um, you know, inadequate and insufficient. But even that is its own legal analysis of whether or not the legal um, investigation is is um, satisfactory, but I would imagine that that would be the next move, which is for Israel to investigate itself and then to declare that you know its national courts um, have the capacity to do this and the ICC jurisdiction is redundant and invasive. Um, as a Palestinian, and uh, you can speak about this, do you think the Palestinian government used this opportunity to advocate and, edu- and educate about? Uh, for their people and about the Palestinian cause that has been happening for over 100 years now? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's actually my primary complaint and disappointment in this process. Absolutely not. So one of the things and the arguments that I, you know, that I bear out in the book, Justice for Some, is, right, that relationship between law and politics. And I approach... Um, all legal questions, as a movement lawyer would approach any any legal questions, which is to think about when you are using law, which is you know uh, reflective of of the strong, and on the international scale, it's reflective of a colonial and imperial order. By as a matter of structure, it will be set up against you. It does not. It is set up in order to affirm the rights of the strong, right? And in order mm-hmm. for it to be leveraged for its emancipatory purpose, it must be used in the sophisticated service of a political movement. And what has to be, you know, the guiding principle must be that movement actors and movement lawyers, which <laughs> Palestinian leadership is not, but if they are going to use the law as a tool, then the guiding principle must be that they need to achieve a political victory even in case of a legal defeat. So what would a political victory look like here, notwithstanding a legal defeat within the court? That would mean using this ICC bid in order to do what you were saying, which is to mount a political grassroots campaign that does the following. First and foremost, it has to empower the Palestinian survivors, primarily in Gaza, to allow them to to rehabilitate them, to share their stories, to provide a platform for them so that they can be seen and heard, that they are not merely victims waiting for charity and handouts, but they are speaking for themselves and empowered subjects. Number two, the PLO missions and the different you know, op- um, embassies in some places that are actually Palestinian embassies across the world should have made this a primary uh, campaign where they offered their staff to go into universities, to go into communities, to mount, um, you know, to provide teaching, to tell, you know, make the case of why Israel has committed war crimes and crimes against humanity using the ICC bid as the hook. 
and being able to tell the story in order to prosecute Israel within a people's tribunal. Number three, there sh they should have mounted a media campaign. There should have been talking points on this across every media channel in order to democratize the discourse, to highlight why Israel is a bad actor, in order to create this kind of language outside of the courtroom. Um, and number four, what they should have done is educated the Palestinian public itself. What are the risks of this ICC bid? What are the possible gains, the best that it's going to get? What is to expect, what not to expect? The Palestinian leadership has approached this, has punted this to legal experts and made it basically a legal case as if we were in some, you know, utopian la-la land where the court will, you know, there will be justice and justice is blind. And that's just not the case. Palestinians are a stateless people living under apartheid, military occupation, and ongoing settler colonialism, facing off with the 11th most powerful military in the world and the only nuclear power in the Middle East. There is no, there is, we should not be waiting on a legal outcome. We should be using this opportunity basically to advance the struggle for freedom. And I think that, unfortunately, that the Palestinian uh, leadership has missed the mark. Wow. Well, thank you for all of that. And, and I hate to end the conversation here because it's been so fascinating. And so we'd love to continue this at some point. Could you quickly tell the listeners how to get your book? And then we're going to move over to the situation in Iran and talk about what Congress can do. Sure. The book you can get on Stanford University Press's website, which I encourage everyone to get it from there. The alternative would be Amazon. And I, we are, um, um, I'm not going to plug them we kind of just did but that's all right yeah, you, you can get did, it on, didn't. <laughs> but i have news i have news sup um stanford university is also about to roll it out in paperback and so now you can it'll be even more accessible um and you can get it as an ebook um and you can get it in your library so i encourage you to read it we will put that link in our social media so that folks can order the book. It's an incredible book, and we suggest you read it. And Nora, this is Terry, and I am really fascinated by your closing comments about movement building, and it would be fascinating to have further conversation on that on another program because that is so much of what is also happening in other parts of the globe, particularly Latin America, and so many of those movement building um, organizations are um, direct target of these right-wing fascist governments, mm -hmm. and it would be a fascinating conversation to have um, in the future with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take a very short break, and then we'll have uh, Hassan Al-Tayyib on to talk to us about preventing a war in Iran.
Welcome back. You are listening to Code Pink Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., WPFW and WBAI New York City. Thanks for joining us. So we are in the Middle East today discussing the Middle East, and uh, things are hot and dangerous right now. We are very, very worried about a war with Iran, and we have an expert on the line uh, who's going to talk to us about how to prevent a war with Iran and what Congress can do. Hassan, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you so much, Ariel. Happy to be here. So could you just start out by um, talking about kind of where we're at in Congress and giving our listeners, I know even myself, there's so much going on and it's hard to keep up. If you could give us just a little overview. Um, so on Congress, and just happening between the U.S. and Iran, I mean, I guess we could start, obviously, I think your guests, uh, sorry, um, your listeners know that the U.S. assassinated the Quds Force commander of Iran, uh, Qasem Soleimani. And that set off a series of escalating events, including the retaliation and Iranian attack on the U.S. base. No one was killed, thankfully, but, um, you know, that has just really escalated tensions and, you know, people are worried about further use of force. Congress has tried to reassert its constitutional war authority, and uh, folks, you know, anyone who knows anything about the Constitution knows pretty clearly that Article One, Section 8, uh, it gives Congress the power to declare war, not the executive branch. So last week, there was a vote on HCON Res 83, and that was the uh, Iran War Powers Resolution, and that passed by a vote of 224 to 194. Um, now, there's going to be a new effort in the Senate. Uh, that was uh, another bill introduced by Senator Kane. Um, that's SJ Res 68. And that's, again, an Iran war powers resolution. And if passed and enacted into law, it would force the president to uh, stop hostilities with Iran and prevent us from, you know, adding troops to the region or doing additional airstrikes. So it's really important that Congress reassert its war authority and prevent this escalating situation from getting further out of hand. Now, I've been hearing good news that uh, this resolution headed to the Senate, or in the Senate, headed to a vote uh, by uh, introduced by Tim Kaine, uh, has a really good likelihood of passing. Yes. Uh, so, you know, what, what we needed to be able to pass this bill is every single Democrat to vote for it, and we needed four Republicans. So last week, there was a private classified briefing of the Trump administration, including Pompeo, Haskell, and um, Esper, the you know, national security team of the Trump administration. And they briefed Congress on the strike. Was it imminent? Did we have to do it? And in that briefing, they told Congress to not take up war powers, to not vote on it. Everything's cool. Just trust us. Many sure. members were really a- yeah, many members are really offended by that, including Senators Mike Lee and Rand Paul. And so they immediately, you know, came out and said, we went into that briefing saying that we were, you know, undecided. We came out and we are definitely supporting the Iran War Powers Resolution. So that was a little bit of momentum. That got us two Republicans. And then recently we had uh, Senator Collins and Senator Young um, 
tell uh, Senator Kane, the original co- you know lead of this bill, that they would also support. So if that remains true, it seems like we have the four Republicans we need to get this over the finish line. Now, we've, we've passed War Powers resolutions previously uh, in relation to Yemen, and uh, Trump vetoed that. What are the chances that he would veto this? I imagine high, and how would we get past that? Yeah, so there, the chances are fairly likely that the Trump administration would, you know, Trump would veto this resolution. And it's unlikely at this point, unless something changes, that we would have a veto override majority. We would need 67 votes to get over that. But I would argue that it's really still extremely important uh, that Congress, you know, makes clear that they don't want a war with Iran for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, I think it's important that, um, you know, that it because it will help de-escalate tensions with Iran, it will help win the court of public opinion. As long as Congress keeps voting on it, we'll still we'll continue to talk about it and not move on to the next issue and continue to force the question of, is this, you know, would a war with Iran make sense for the U.S.? And, you know, overwhelmingly, the public opinion is no. So it's really important that Congress continue to force the question. And it also sets the stage for further congressional action during consideration of the annual defense appropriation bills and the National Defense Authorization Act later this year, Congress could foreseeably attach a resolution on that must-pass, on either one of those must-pass bills, and, you know, and essentially tie the president's hands from launching further strikes. And, and lastly, some legal experts have also argued that these votes could be used in a potential Supreme Court lawsuit against the president over separation of powers issues. So, it's really critical that we keep forcing the issue. So I, I have a, a question, or maybe we could expand the conversation on how we're defining war with Iran, Hassan, because, you know, we have the, these uh, this legislation in Congress that is specific to, my, to a hot war. But the United States also has um, an economic war in place with Iran that is – indiscriminately affecting Iranians. Can we talk a little bit about the U.S. Um, sanctions on Iran as a form of warfare and what the effects have been so far and what we can do absolutely. about that here in D.C. and across the country? Yeah, absolutely. That's such an important question. And I just want to maybe turn back the clock to um, the fact that we had the Iran nuclear deal that, would, that alleviated some sanctions and it prevented Iran from, you know, developing... Uh, nuclear capabilities and a nuclear weapon. So that was really critical. That deal was working. The Trump administration came in. They decided we're going to tear that up and take a different approach, maximum pressure sanctions. I would argue that these sanctions have been a maximum failure. Uh, you know, they were um, designed to, you know, punish the regime. Well, the regime spread its influence around the region, and it just served to basically cut off the Iranian people from the rest of the world and make their lives miserable, including cutting off life-saving medicines, you know, cancer meds that they can't get now. So, you know, economic sanctions are warfare, and it's important to force that question and, and, you know, really, you know, drive that home. So how do we get out of that? Well, one, I mean, Congress needs to, one, prevent a war, push for diplomacy, and that's in their power to do. Uh, they can create humanitarian exemptions for sanctions as well. Uh, I'm working on a bill uh, with 
uh, some folks, including Coach Pink, and yes, been, thank so, you. So, yeah, <laughs> big yeah, project. Yeah, and so you know, trying to create at least some pathways, uh, Coach Pink and Human Rights Watch, I should I should mention, um, create humanitarian you know sanctions. Uh, sorry, humanitarian exemptions through the maximum pressure sanction to at least let the medicines that folks need to get through. So that's the approach we're working on. And again, just encouraging diplomacy, not war. I mean, that's really how we get, you know, get around this critical issue. I want to remind our listeners that you can take action on all of these things. You can push Congress to take action to ensure that humanitarian aid, medicines, etc., get through. And you can also... Uh, directly contact your senators and tell them that when the War Powers Resolution, when Tim Kaine's War Powers Resolution comes to a vote, which will be soon, you want them to vote yes. So to do that, you can go to codepink.org slash Iran. We have a bunch of actions there. And uh, real quickly, I also want to let our listeners know that on January 25th, there is an international day of action to stop a war with Iran. Over a hundred cities are already already have protests planned, and we at Code Pink are here to help you plan a protest in your city if you are not already one of the ones planning protests. And you can again find that on codepink.org slash Iran here in D.C. on January 25th at 12 o'clock p.m. We will be in front of the White House to say no way to a war with Iran. Now, Hassan, these are not the only bills in Congress uh, d- addressing this and invoking the War Powers Resolution. What else should we be keeping an eye out for? Yeah, so there's a whole of legislation that's, that's kind of flying around out there. Um, I want to just kind of go over the most important ones. Obviously, Please. It, yeah, it's, it, you know, number one, we've got to get the Iran war powers resolution over the finish line. We've got to make sure it gets a good vote. If it passes the Senate, we got to make sure we get a good vote in the House as well. So, so that's number one. Can you name that bill for us? Yeah, so that's SJ Res 68. The Iran War Powers Resolution. So folks can simply call their senators and say, vote yes on the Iran War Powers Resolution, no war with Iran. And that's you know? Tim Kaine's bill, right? That's Tim Kaine's bill. Okay. That's, and okay. folks can find okay. that on codepink.org slash Iran. Yep. So the second thing I would want to mention is that there's, you know, that's the authorization piece saying, okay, the way we're going to handle this is prevent the authorization for use of military force. Well, there's this whole other thing called the power of the purse that Congress Congress can wield. And there's another bill called the No War Against Iran Act. That was there's It's a companion. Uh, Senator Sanders has one in the Senate, and then uh, Representative Khanna has one in the House. And do, you know those, add, do you know those numbers offhand? Yeah, so uh, let me just say, so on the House side, we, it's H.R., Five five four three. Okay, and that's Ro legislation. Yeah, and then on the Senate side, I believe it's S three one five nine. Great. And so it's I'm it's unclear at the moment if we're going to get a vote in the Senate because you know 
Mitch McConnell, uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, controls the floor and what happens, and it's not privileged, so it's going to be hard to force a vote. But we've heard that Hoyer and um, uh, Representative Hoyer is going, he's the whip of the Democrats in the Senate, that they plan to force a vote on Connor's bill. They plan to force a vote on the No War Against Iran Act and the 2002 Iraq AUMF repeal. And, and this was the authorization for use of force to go after Saddam Hussein. And we basically haven't really used that since 2011 until the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. So I think it's important that Congress force a question on this AUMF issue as well, because, you know, we don't want these, you know, outdated AUMFs lying around that could be potential uh, that could be potentially used for an authorization for use of force against Iran. So I think it's important to force that vote as well. So if that had already gone through, if we had already gotten that vote or had been included in the final version of the National Defense Authorization Act, could the U.S. have carried out the assassination of Soleimani? Um, I mean, it's foreseeable that maybe they could have found, you know, used the 2001 AUMF, but I think it's... It would have been you know, harder. Could, it would have been a lot harder, and I think, you know, they it would have been, you know... Um, yeah, I think it would have been hard, harder, and potentially, you know, there would have been no legal justification. So it's arguable that we wouldn't even be in this situation today had the Congress held firm on the National Defense Authorization Act and taken out the 2002 Iraq AUMF you know, kept that provision in to, you know, repeal that AUMF. And also there was Khanna's, uh, you know, no funding for a war against Iran act, uh, sorry, um, the Khanna Gates Amendment, which would have, you know, prevented funding for an unauthorized war against Iran. So we had two shots at that already last year. And I hate to say, I told you so. But you told us so. (laughs) But we told you so. We told Congress that this, this could happen, and it did. And, you know, obviously it's super disappointing, but, you know, we, we got to, you know, put the pity party for us to hide and just, you know, move forward with what we can control right now. And uh, we've got some, you know, important votes coming up. Now, do you know the number for or who's leading the repeal of the 2002 AUMF? And I assume that's just in the House, but so we can tell our listeners. Yeah, you know, I off the top of my head, I don't know the number, but Representative Barbara Lee, again, um, she that's her bill, and that's the one that's going to get a vote. Perfect. I want to give folks the number for the U.S. Capitol switchboard. That is 202-224-3121, and we encourage you to call and uh, tell your representative and your senators to push and vote the right way on all three of these important uh, bills that Hassan has been talking about in the House and the Senate. And Hassan, can you give us our give us um, your website address for reference purposes, as well as our listeners can most certainly go to codepink.org. I think the biggest thing in this conversation. Um, we've had with you this morning is that people here in the United States can and should feel empowered to do something and not just feel we are at the mercy of what the White House is um, determining to be U.S. foreign policy. There's some real action that we can all take and um, and not just feel overwhelmed or victimized. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such an important point. Um, our website, just to start off there, so I don't forget, is the Friends, Com- we're the Friends Committee on National Legislation by Quaker Lobby and the Public Interest. We've been around for about 76 years doing this stuff, and, uh, you know, long history of activism there. You can find more about us at fcnl.org. Um, and, but I think the point you just made as far as, you know, not feeling apathetic at this moment, knowing that we can do something about this, and and our voices do matter. Congress needs to hear from us. We need to keep forcing the issue. We're building a bipartisan, bicameral majority to take back constitutional war authority and prevent um, uh, President Trump from doing something that would make America less safe and make the Middle East more unstable. So. I think I think now is the time to come together, and even if we might disagree about other stuff, this is something that I think we should all be able to agree on. Absolutely. We want to thank you for joining us, and uh, we want everyone to take action on this, and I want to remind our listeners again that January 25th is the International Day of Action for Peace with Iran. We need to stop this war from happening, and we need everybody out in the streets. You can go to our website, codepink.org, and find a protest in your city for January 25th. It's and like if, 91 cities across oh, the world. Oh, no, no, right? we are over 100 now. Oh, okay. Yes. I saw 91 yes. when I woke up this morning. It so. was. Awesome. It's now over 100 just in the U.S. alone. Oh, fantastic. And then uh, many more countries. If there is not a protest planned in your city, well, it sounds like you have got your work cut out for you. And we'd love to help you. We at Code Pink would love to help you um, plan and advertise and carry out your protest for January 25th. Here in D.C., that protest will be in front of the White House at 12 o'clock p.m. And uh, for folks who are not already over at the Senate, head on over there now to join us in the Women's March. We're on our way. No way to a war in Iran. Thanks for listening.